Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome back, everyone. I am really happy to be talking to Manya today, who I also met in my Shift Enneagram class. And if anybody has the opportunity to do an offering like this from the Shift Network, where you get to connect with these high-level seekers in the Enneagram community, um, or something like the Green Room, which uh, Catherine Bell, who we interviewed a couple weeks ago, is doing, it's just so rich to collect these life lessons and to learn from people who have had their own unique experience from their own instinctual stack and their own type. And I think that these stories really give us the opportunity to hear what are people's vulnerabilities, what were their blind spots, how have they worked with it. And Manya has been so generous and is willing to be here with us today. And so before she launches into her story, I'm just going to introduce her and give you the brief outline. Um, Manya is 72 years old and getting better every year. I get the sense she's like a fine wine that as we age her, we're just going to see more and more flavor and color and nuance coming out of Manya. I've enjoyed following her on Facebook. She just got done hiking the Camino. Um, her story started out as a massage therapist and energy healer. And then at age 37, she went to medical school at the University of Massachusetts and was in medical practice for six years. She then shifted out of that and went into organizational consulting and coaching. And she has been a longtime student of the Enneagram and uses this in her offerings. She also offers private coaching. And we are both in a certification class with Russ that at the end of 2023, we will be certified to also teach the Enneagram. So I know that we're excited for this journey. I will have her contact information in the show notes. Um, she has a website that is awakeintheandes.com where you can get some information about her and the email will be in the show notes. And if you are inspired to do some coaching with Manya and uh, learn from her life lessons, I know that she's taking new clients. So without further ado, Manya, what, where would you like to pick up on whichever thread I threw out there? And I know that listeners are always interested to hear about your early Enneagram journey and how you discovered it. Um, I have observed that it can take sixes a while to land on their type. And I'm personally curious as to whether you knew you were a six right away or if you had to work your way there. What instinctual stack are you identifying with and why? And that's often a good place to start. And the last thing I want to mention is that Selmania is an INFP. And we can pull some pieces of that in as well. So, Manya, take it away. Tell us about your journey a little bit. Okay. Well, I'll just start by saying I identify as a type six. And my instinctual stacking is self-pres, social, sexual, blind spot. I think I'll start with where my journey started, uh, which is that I essentially had an awakening experience at age 20. I was at Harvard University as an undergraduate, and I found myself, I think at the beginning of my junior year, I, I was quite depressed, actually. And part of that had, was a relationship, you know, based kind of thing. But um, I just didn't feel engaged. You know, looking back, I, I, I always think that while well, Harvard conferred certainly a number of advantages for me and on me. It, it wasn't really the right environment for me. It was a little, it was too big. I had a hard time finding my place and it was actually quite academic and I'm essentially an experiential learner. So anyway, there I was, I was feeling quite depressed. And Can I ask you I, one question about your experience yeah. at Harvard? Because I went to Princeton, so they're probably somewhat similar. I bet you found a lot more threes than sixes at Harvard. Well, at that time I didn't. I wasn't aware of the But if you were to think about it, like I yeah. feel like those environments yeah. attract a lot of threes. 
They attract a lot of fives. I think that those are probably, and I also think they attract a lot of ones. What do you think? Well, definitely high achievers. So threes for sure, ones. And you'll find all types, but you'll find all types. Yeah. 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 But I mean, a lot of people say that there aren't a lot of fives and ones out there. And I'm like, oh, you haven't been in my world. I feel like in healthcare also, both of us are medical doctors. And I think you see a lot of threes, fives, and ones in healthcare as well, is what I observe. And I think you can find sixes everywhere. Um, So I don't want to say you don't have sixes, of course. But when I was hearing you talk about Harvard not being the right environment, I know that these Ivy League schools are very competitive. And that's actually the stress arrow for six. So I would imagine that those environments might not feel great for a six. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think there were a number of reasons for that. But um, anyway, so I, I'm i trying to remember when this happened. Actually, it might have been in spring of my sophomore year. So I was what's, what was known then as a social relations major, which was an interdisciplinary major, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and it was uh, a composite of psychology, social psychology, sociology, and social anthropology. So it was all about the study of human behavior and systems, which is really, of course, why the, the Enne- in part why the Enneagram is so fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, anyway, I had been reading a book by R.D. Lang, uh, who probably many people haven't heard of, but at the time he was a fairly well-known psychiatrist and he was doing work that was considered, let's say, outside the box. And he had a, he did a lot of work with schizophrenia and he had an experimental therapeutic community in London. And I was reading this book called The Divided Self. And it was the very first exposure I had to, to anything really, but it was through this book that helped me begin to get some insight into my own inner conflicts. Mm. So, so I, and I was fascinated with this community. I thought, man, I would love to live there. But I was very shy, you know, and I, to me, anybody who wrote a, a book was a famous person and who was I to write a famous person. And anyway, it turned out he was actually in India then. But uh, however, Can I pause re- you one minute when something yeah. makes me giggle inside. I like yeah. to just highlight the difference, too. Um, I just found a new author and he appears to be a famous person to me. And I've like so fallen in love with this book that um, I noticed that he's in a city that I happened to be visiting. And I just like sent an email saying, could I have coffee with you? I'm in love with your brain. And it's just like such a three thing to like in the moment, like just be like, well, of course I can reach out to a famous person. Whereas that's the difference I think between a three and a six, there's more pause. There's more like reflection. There's more like, Ooh, could I do that? Well, I could do it now. Right. But back then when I was 20. Yeah. Right. I'm talking about yeah. when we're in our type, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to bring in a little bit more of the pause, like, oh, maybe I should think about who I approach before <laughs> I just take my Labrador puppy energy and throw it on top of them. So anyway, go ahead, Manya. Thank you. Um, but anyway, as a result of reading that, I decided that I would take a semester abroad and go to London, live in London. And I did have a professor who sort of helped me you know, find a place to stay with some friends of his. And, you know, what's interesting, and I'll just put this in sort of the Enneagram Gurdjieffian terms, is I needed a shock. I needed something. You know, I knew I needed a change. And so that's what I created. Yeah. And I went to London. And that sounds like your sexual blind spot coming online a little bit. And just, you know, there was some charge. There was some novelty. Like you're taking your current life experience, combining it with the unknown in London. And we're about to hear what emerged from that. So I'm just highlighting that that was sexual instinct coming online, I think. Absolutely. And there have been definite points in my life where when I feel like I'm really stuck and stagnating, I my sexual energy or instinct comes online. And it's like, okay. Same for me. I'm sexual blind as well. And every single time, I mean, exactly. It's a stagnation. And it sounds like what you did going to London was a wonderfully healthy expression of the sexual instinct. That doesn't sound like there was a problem with that choice. No, not at all. Great. Um, You know, so I discovered, of course, that I did take myself with me. It's not like my life dramatically was like suddenly... I was this happy, bubbly, you know. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, has that book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. 
And anyway, long story short, I, I lived in a flat with some English uh, young people like myself. I took yoga classes. I explored London. And I had a friend who was taking a semester abroad, having been inspired by my decision. And she and I had decided to rendezvous in Paris because she had a week's vacation in May. And I got there a couple of days before she did. And I was sort of wandering up and down the left bank of the Seine, I think. And I kept crossing paths with this man uh, who clearly was an American, right? Because you can always tell Americans or almost always. And on the third crossing, we stopped and said hello and something to the effect of like, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm working with R.D. Lang. Oh my goodness. Wow. Talk about a synchronicity. But this guy had the contact with the therapeutic community and he gave me the name and number. And as soon as I got back to London, I contacted them. That's amazing. And I went, they had an open house once a week because people from all over the world were very interested in what Lang was doing. Uh And I went to this open house. And the thing about these communities, this therapeutic community network was, it was a place for people who were designated as mentally ill, who had diagnoses, Yeah, you know, so there were people who were either there because they had come out of a hospitalization or were people who were there as a way of not going into hospital. And there were people who were longtime residents there. And then there were all these other people who were just sort of very interested in, it was kind of like an incubator of very innovative things happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went there and what I discovered when I went to this open house dinner was I was both the most terrified and most excited simultaneously that I could recall having experienced. I think that means you're in the right place. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I've learned. Like it, it is, yeah. it's like terrifying and exciting. And there's also something inside of me that basically like there is no other choice. Like this is what's happening. Right. It was utterly compelling. Yes. So my, my friend and Barbara and I had decided to, we had already agreed we would travel for the summer. And I thought, well, I would go back there for two weeks before I went back to school because I had arranged for, you know, the first semester off. And I went there and I thought, oh, you know, I'll get credit, you know, academic credit. I'll write a paper about it, blah, blah, blah. Well, by my third day there, I knew that I, I was supposed to stay there for a while. So I arranged to take another semester off. Yeah. Um, I experienced things. Basically, what happened living there was it kind of blew open like the windows and doors of my mind. Yeah. You know, I had been a good kind of middle class, you know, kind of uh, dutiful, right, yeah. daughter, you know, gone to Harvard. But I went to London to find myself. I mean, I knew that that's what motivated me is like I had to find myself. Yeah. So I went to London. I went to seminars in existential psychology and I hung out with people who were having psychotic breaks. And I I mean, it was just like, you know, I was going to yoga classes and I came back essentially. I mean, I finished that four month stint. I came back and I got involved in the human potential and personal growth movement. Wow. So it set me on my path essentially. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So what made you decide to go to medical school? I mean, I, I mean, starting medical school at 37, you know, I did the very traditional, you know, graduated college at 22, went straight to medical school, finished at 26. There were older students in my class and it's just a lot to take on. It's a lot of time, energy, debt. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I had been practicing. I mean, I went from, I'm somebody who's always kind of bridged different worlds. So, you know, I went from this academic world and then I became a hippie. Basically, uh-huh. I lived communally. I was got very I was exposed to sort of all the stuff that was happening in the psycho spiritual movement. I had trained as a massage therapist. I, I did one of the few really good therapeutic massage trainings at the time. I set up a practice in Boston, and it was wonderful work. It was very intuitive work, but I got to a point where I felt like I wasn't really using my mind, and I also had a vision. That I could be, I was someone who could be a bridge between the world of conventional medicine and non-conventional medicine, because I never saw them polarized. To me, it was just a spectrum of care. Yeah. I mean, that's what made sense to me, you know, and it's like you use the best of what's available 
you know, based on, excuse me, on your particular situation. Yeah. So I had this vision that I could be a change agent in that way. Yeah. And that's really. Honestly, I feel like that right now. So one of the reasons that I vibe with you so strongly is, you know, I feel like a lot of sisterhood energy. You know, I'm 25 years younger than you and I'm responding to that longing inside of me. I actually took a sabbatical off of work two and a half months ago and I'm not going back really. Now I've given myself another two and a half months. So uh, what I'm doing right now is trying to figure out how to navigate that divide because I think it's really important and it's really heartwarming for me to hear that you were in that space too. Well, I'd love to have another conversation at another time with you if you want to. Yeah, about thank that. you. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I made the decision. And I, I actually considered when I was looking at get, I decided I wanted an advanced degree, right? Yep. And I looked at clinical psychology and master's of social work and a, you know, PhD in uh, you could do anything. Divinity, You're right? right? Yeah, of course. But I actually, at the time, thought, you know, I think an MD would actually give me the most leverage. You're to probably do right. What I wanted to do. Do you think you're right? Well, let's just say uh, that once I got into practice, I realized that I wasn't, I wasn't enamored of focusing on diagnosing pathology. I was more interested in helping people really focus on their strengths and becoming whole and what it would take to become whole. Yeah. And I also don't you have to know what the pathology is first before you can treat the disease, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if you're a medical doctor, you do. (laughs) Well, but even a spiritual doctor, I mean, I think that's what the Enneagram and the instincts and Myers-Briggs and, you know, human design and astrology, like all of these things I think of as tools to sort of diagnose where the psycho-spiritual problem might be that now we can work with. is Do you sense it that way or is it different yes. for you? No, I, I do. Okay. And part of it, part of that decision, anyway, when I got into practicing medicine, I just didn't want the lifestyle. Yeah. And at the time, you know, I, I don't think I had enough support to think about, well, how could I stay in medicine and do what I wanted to do, essentially? Right. Were you married um, at this point? Actually, I was separated. My decision, my decision to go to medical school catalyzed the end of my first marriage. Got it. Um, and why was so that? I, like you just, I mean, you were changing everything in that moment? Let's just say some of the dynamics that really didn't work in the relationship sort of yeah. came to a head. Okay. And had you had any point. children in that relationship? No. Okay. No. Do you have children uh, now? Did no. you? No. Okay. I haven't Thank had you. children. Yep. So anyway, I went. I did pursue medicine. I I am very, I mean, I'm glad I did it. And part of it, it's interesting, Cara, because I think this comes into my sickness, is that I think I was at a point where I had to prove to myself that I was smart enough to do it. Yes. Um, so I had to sort of show myself that I could yeah. do that. Anyway, I but I've always been somebody who's followed my heart. And I got to a point, although I tried to I actually practiced for six years. I met my second husband. I moved to Michigan. And because I needed a job, although I had already decided I wanted to shift into organizational development, which has also been an interest of mine for a long time, but because I needed a job, I went into the psychiatry residency at the University of Michigan. Got it. And I did that for a couple of years. At the same time, I pursued a certificate program in organizational change. Got it. And I was doing them simultaneously. Uh And then I ultimately decided to leave my psychiatry residency because I had put everything I really didn't want to do into the last year. When I got to that year, I was like, I really don't want to do it. Now I, in retrospect, I think it would have been better if I had done it it, it, from a practical point of view, you know? Uh, But as I said, I'm somebody who pretty much always follows my heart. Uh, Can I make a comment on that? Yeah. Okay. Cause what's coming up for me is I'm wanting to pull in your, Myers-Briggs and just comment on how everything you're saying is what an INFP would probably navigate off of. So because um, we have a lot of MBTI enthusiasts that are also listening to this podcast and people who are very curious about how can we integrate the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs because they offer us different things. As an INFP, your dominant function 
is introverted feeling, which for me, that's my seventh out of eight. They call it devilish in the Jungian archetypes. Like I'm barely in touch with it, which is why as a three, many of us have introverted feeling low and part of our growth process is actually connecting with how do I feel about that? We're social chameleons because we're going to pretend that we feel however you feel. And an INFP is not going to do that. Like you know how you feel. Like you have a very strong inner compass and that's coming out in this story, I think. Well, what's interesting though is in human design, uh-huh. my access to my emotional intuitive side is unconscious and okay. it actually takes me a while. So part of my orientation is I need the experience to yeah. tell me what works and what doesn't work. Interesting. So, so can yeah. I go to your other functions just because I want to name what I see um, unfolding here is that your second function is extroverted intuition, which is my first function. So I'm going to overutilize extroverted intuition. And for you, it's an apparent function. And I think we already even see it here. Sometimes my extroverted intuition just is like, oh, let's talk about this. And you can track with me. You don't get destabilized by it, but you have more parent energy around it where it's like, Yes, and we're doing this, which, you know, (laughs) now I can track back. And I love that, you know, because it really supports me when I'm with people that give me, I'm just going to say social cues because I'm also social middle. So I have to bring a little more presence to tracking that because my extroverted intuition on some of these episodes, you'll see it just go a little crazy. So I love that. Your third or your 10-year-old function is introverted sensing, which is my three-year-old function, which when it's a 10-year-old function, this is your eternal child. So this may be where some of that uncertainty or doubt within the type six structure um, can come from because introverted sensing is sometimes called memory. It's like, how are things done? Is this okay? Does this fit within the value system that I want to live out and that's come before me? And, you know, people who are very high on introverted sensing are much more attached to tradition, ritual, routine. If it's lower down, like for you, it's 10-year-old. For me, it's three-year-old. It's like we know what's been done, but we're not that attached to it. But there's a little bit of angst that comes up when we're going to do something That isn't traditional because we actually have what is traditional in our consciousness. Um, And then the last one that I'll just name here for you is extroverted thinking, which is executing, like getting something done, like doing the plan because it's the practical thing to do. So when I heard you talk about not doing that third year of the psychiatry program you were talking about, that was the manifestation of your three-year-old function. You can get things done when you decide to, but as you reflect on your life, there may have been times that you didn't dot that I or cross that T or take it across the finish line because there were other values that were more important in the moment. How is that for you to hear? Does that work for you or is it not how it is? I'm not sure I would agree with that as the sort of underlying dynamic, because I think knowing other things, like in terms of my astrology, and there's so many things that come into play here. What came in from astrology? Would you mention that for a moment? I know that astrology is an interest, not an expertise of yours, but what do you know about your chart that feeds into what we're talking about? Well, specifically, I have Saturn in the 12th house, and Saturn is the archetype that has to do with structure, form, um, discipline, but the 12th house is ruled by Pisces, which is all about letting go of form. Oh. And so my understanding as I've worked with, you know, sort of my mentor astrologer yeah. is that anytime I get close to being too identified with a form, it just, it just dissolves. But let me just, one thing I didn't mention is I actually first got exposed to the Enneagram when I was 23. Okay. And that actually was a result of, again, some of the psycho-spiritual work that I was engaged in. There were two women who were leading, um, at the time, it was called Fisher-Hoffman Therapy. It was a three-month intensive therapy. But they had worked with Claudio Naranjo and studied the Enneagram. So they did an oral study group for 10 weeks. And that's where I first learned the Enneagram. And of course, it was much less developed than it is now, right? right? Because that was like 1973 or 74. And you asked me about how to know my type, you know, so I think for maybe a little 
bit, I identified with a four. But pretty soon I realized just based on the passion and the fixation of, you know, sort of um, self-doubt, angst, worry, I thought I am a six. There's just no question about it, you know. And same thing when I learned, I haven't had any confusion. Well, I shouldn't say I haven't had any confusion about my instinctual stacking, but it was clear to me pretty early on, although I deliberated whether social was my primary because my social was pretty close to my self-pres. Okay. Um, but it became very clear to me. You know, Why do you my, know you're sexual blind? Because I, I deprioritize it. I have the impulse. Yeah. I know that I'm missing something. I mean, I'm very attuned to the energy of it when it's present. Yeah. And I know when I'm missing it and I get very cranky when it's yeah. not present actually. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. But I always, I deprioritize it. And part of it's because of my very responsible personality mm-hmm. structure and the fact that I've had to be responsible for a chronically ill husband. Okay. Um, you know, so it's like, was well, he chronically ill all along the way, or when did he become chronically ill? Uh, he developed dementia. Well, at least nine years. It started really manifesting nine years ago. It might have, I might have seen earlier signs if I'd known what I was seeing maybe a year before that. Yeah. Um, so, how is he doing right now? Well, he's. I moved him into assisted living at the very beginning okay. of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, which was another very heroic actually kind of look looking back on it it was uh you know kind of my sickness really coming forward at its best in some ways um but anyway why was it at your best what did you what do you well it was very heroic it was just like there were I had made all these plans and we were going to move at the end of March and then a week before Ecuador shut its borders because of the pandemic and so every plan I had made fell apart I had to scramble in the course of 36 hours to get us on a humanitarian charter flight, get him packed, uh, get a driver when nobody was allowed on the roads here in Ecuador. Wow. You know, it just. Well, I love that you're naming that. And for listeners that are not as familiar with the six structure, six is under stress, go to three. And the energy within the engine of a six can put any three to shame. I mean, like you guys are, there's a reason why. Threes seem like they're tough, but we kind of collapse. Like sixes don't lead with that same assertive energy. But when push comes to shove, you want a six on your team every single time. Because it's like they're like this warrior energy that through hell or high water, like they will get you across the finish line is what I've observed. Yeah, that's what it was. It was like, I have got to find a way to do this. And you did. That's amazing. I I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Where are we? So, I have no anyway, idea. <laughs> so um, where were we? Responsible, sexual blind spot. Well, we were talking about becoming a physician and we were talking about how you did that for the six years, but that you really didn't want the lifestyle of the physician. Like there's something about doing the MD thing that sounds really exciting and awesome. And in some ways it is, but the actual lifestyle of being an MD is pretty dry. And it's pretty repetitive and it's pretty, um, you know, day to day to day. And thank goodness we have people that are really good at being doctors, but that's actually something that I struggled with, which is why I ended up starting my own medical practice seven and a half years into practicing because I'm like, oh, there is no way that I am going to survive in a traditional internal medicine structure. And so I started my own medical practice. And in my community, I have a reputation of being a loose cannon, which makes me laugh because that basically means that I don't like, I'm never, I'm not employed. I just have to like do my own thing and practice in my own way. And I, I don't feel those same, and I'm willing to make less money to do it. It's like, I really want the freedom and the choice to practice in the way I want to practice. So yeah. Well, that's, and that's really why I, a large part of why I left too is, I mean, I've been self-employed most of my working life, you know, and I don't like having to 
play by somebody else's rules. Yeah. Basically. Threes and sixes share that arrow. We're both a little anti-authoritarian. We're kind of like, I'm not going to stay in your structure unless I really believe in it. The other thing is I had a hard time being on call, you know, because I, I have a strong need and this is in my human design to be in my own rhythm and flow. And when that gets constantly interrupted, again, it makes me very cranky. (laughs) Well, it makes me cranky too. I mean, the reason that I ended up doing internal medicine and once I started my own practice, the other like SI thing, which is memory and my three-year-old function, I'm like, you know, there's this thing about the doctor being on call and then I'm supposed to have my phone next to me to answer, you know, 15 calls a night or something. And this doesn't make sense to me because I'm like, I live in Chicago. There are 1 million urgent cares and emergency rooms that if my patients need help between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., that they can just go. Like there's nothing I'm going to do from my bedroom that is going to be useful. And I'm not willing to sacrifice my self-care. This is my self-pres coming through. I'm like, I need to not answer phone calls from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so I just decided I'm not going to be a doctor that answers anyone. They can figure it out. I don't do anything practical. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that, you know, my self, my dominant self-pres was also at play because I really, and of course I was older by this time too, you know, uh, and I was like, I do not do well with uh, a lot of interrupted sleep, lack of sleep, you know, a really does. That's the wisdom of the self-pres. I mean, in my medical practice, the number of people with chronic illness who are shift workers or have to work at night or, you know, have really terrible sleep. I mean, we now have so much research showing how important sleep is and our world does not respect that. One of the reasons we have so much disease is that we have gotten so out of sync with the natural rhythms of nature and sunrise and sunset and when we should be quiet and when we should be active. And I think those of us that are self-pressed dominant can lose sight of that if we get hooked onto money because you usually make more money if you're willing to violate your biorhythm. But for those of us that are more connected in that self-pressed way to our health and well-being, that's just a deal breaker. We're not going to do that. But this is actually something that I'm naming into the space for the first time that I think we need a change. Like this is where artificial intelligence, I think, could be wonderful. If we could live in a world where all humans got to follow the body's natural rhythm, we would have a lot less disease. What do you think? I think I absolutely think that's true. And one, we know that a lot of people are just very out of touch with their bodies yeah. and don't actually experience it. It takes a while to really begin to learn the language of the body as you personally experience it. Yes. And, you know, I know in terms of my own self-pres, what's been interesting, a, a real wonderful learning for me is to realize that there are times when I feel like I'm being driven by self-pres things, needs. Yes. You know, paying bills, taking care of things, uh, getting ready for this Camino trip. And I was running around. And to me, they were all kind of self-pres kinds of tasks that had to be done. But in the process, I wasn't listening to my body Mm -hmm. and I hurt my back. Yeah. So I think actually you can be self-pres dominant and think you're focusing on self-pres, but you're actually not present with your sensation in your body. Can I ask you another question about that? So- I didn't wait for you to say yes. Can I? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a growth edge. (laughs) I've picked up on the social nicety of asking permission, but I don't pause and actually wait for somebody to give it. So (laughs) listeners, you can now hold me accountable. Got to work on it. Um, That's my excitement taking me away. So I am very curious because there are a lot of alcoholics in my family. Okay. I was just raised in a culture where everybody drinks at every holiday, every get together. I mean, alcohol is just a part of it. Personally, I just have never drank to a point that was unhealthy for my body because it feels bad. And now as I sit here at 48 years old, like it just gets worse. Like I'm more and more sensitive to the effects of alcohol. So while I would love to share a bottle of wine with a friend every night, because like, I enjoy the taste of wine and 
who doesn't like the way a couple glasses of wine feels in your nervous system, especially when you're a jazzed up three and you want to bring the nervous system down a little bit. But the way it feels in my body afterwards has led me to this place where I think long and hard before I have a drink with somebody. And my body is just really tuned into how awful it feels. And the people in my family that have, I'm just going to, you know, high functioning alcoholics, they don't feel that. Like they don't feel the effects of alcohol in the body. I Now I can see how some types like a self-pres nine could have problems with alcohol because it's numbing and it's like, you know, part of that structure. But I'm wondering if for other types, the self-pres are more sensitive to the way substances feel in their bodies. I'm just thinking out loud. I have no idea if this is true or not true. And you're an intuitive six. I'm just wondering, does that bring up anything for you when I throw that into the space? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, just based on my own experience and talking with people, that as people age, they do become more sensitive. And if they're at all concerned about their health, they heed that, you know, yep. those the, the body talking to them. And I do also think from our Enneagram studies that, you know, any type as it sort of descends in terms of its levels of health is more susceptible sure. to self-violation. Mm-hmm. So partly it depends how much in the grip of right. your personality are you, you are and how much distress it's actually causing you, except you don't think of it as distress, you know, when right. you're not aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I just like to even throw these things into the space because I'm always hoping that a listener gets excited by one of the things I throw out there and wants to do an interview with it because they've actually thought about it and know more about it than me. So here's the plug. Reach out to me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com if you want to have a conversation about this and have some level of expertise. So just thought I'd throw it out there. What I will say to you is that my own personal uh, drug of choice was always food. Okay. And I struggled with that a lot, actually, in my teen years and 20s and 30s. And, you know, I was really a compulsive eater. And I would still say I probably am because I can engage in emotional eating, except now my body is so much more sensitive. The degree to which I can do it is much diminished. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also much, I'm, you know, learning increasingly to be more and more present so that it's like, I can actually honor like what my body is telling me yeah. it needs or wants. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an obesity medicine doctor and I help develop the program eat right now, which basically teaches mm-hmm. mindfulness of the body. And mm-hmm. it is, I mean, People always ask me, like, why did you pick obesity medicine? Well, half of my family is also obese. And I've watched that emotional eating. And for whatever reason, my self-pres is just so dialed into my sleep, my nutrition, my exercise, my substance use, like that I guess I'm in this space because for me, it's so intuitive and natural. I don't think about it. But if I break it down with my introverted thinking, which is my second function and my parent function, which means I'm very good at telling other people how to do self-pres is why I do this. So I just thought I'd throw that into the space because we can teach people how to come into connection. And now I'm noticing that this is my point three, also wanting to self-promote and say, if there are listeners that want to join my Eat Right Now group, it's another great reason to reach out to me because I have a formal program that teaches what I do instinctually to people who need to bring more presence to that. I think it's a really important thing you're bringing up. So now we're in this place where your medical lifestyle is not working for you. And so you get yourself into organizational consulting and coaching. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that chapter? Sure. So for me, the way I view organizational development, um, it was really about looking at the health of systems. And of course, in many ways, that's really what I was wanting to do from the beginning to to function, you know, to participate in, in terms of my decision to go to medical school was really looking at medicine as a system. Yeah. Uh, But I just, anyway, I, I didn't feel like I was thriving. Let's just put it that way um, in that environment. So I had always been interested in OD work and I joined a nonprofit consulting group um, in Ann Arbor. And then, of course, coaching was becoming a big buzzword, right? Sort of around 99, 98, 99. And I realized I'd always had a coaching approach. It was just completely natural for me. 
And so I did kind of specialize. I mean, I continued to do team building and meeting facilitation and some strategic planning. Uh, and I really like working with groups. And I think, and again, this probably comes in part out of my six structure, but I'm sort of a natural facilitator. Um, Sixes are and, great facilitators. And They're one so of the I best. Went, I went, uh, anyway, I did another certification. So again, very six, I'm overeducated, you might say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I went into executive and leadership coaching and I specialized in working with healthcare executives. Yeah. Uh, so You know what? Those of us with extroverted thinking lower in our stack are overeducated. For you, it's your three-year-old fourth function. So it's like, we just keep on adding degrees instead of taking what we've learned and like doing something with it. Whereas like for me, it's in my sixth function. So it's even lower, which is why I don't even tell people my degrees because it's like, oh my God, when are you, it's almost the, that's where I experienced my seven energy. It's, there's almost some gluttony with it. And it's like, just stop learning and start doing. And at the same time, when you're on a growth journey, as you know, you want to continue your own personal practice. You're never done. Well, I think a part of the impetus for me is is also a six related, um, let's say, vulnerability in terms of not valuing myself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, uh, do I really know enough? Do I really have enough? I think it's my nine-ishness where, you know, threes have an arrow to nine. You know, threes are incredibly busy and constantly doing and we do have laziness. I mean, we have nine in us. I, I have a theory that threes are 50% nine, 50% six, and sixes are 50% three and 50% nine, and nines are, you know, and it, that's like kind of how the energy manifests because we know that every six has a lazy nine inside of them, and threes do too. And so for me, it can be very hard to dot the I, cross the T and take it across the finish line and then do the grunt work part, which is the extroverted thinking to just execute on it. So like this podcast, for example, I mean, it took me eight or nine months to actually launch it. And now I've got the system down and it'll keep going. But anytime I need to lock and load a new thing, there's a lot of steps that I have to do before I can push go and become that energizer bunny. So I, I want to speak to what you just mentioned about the 50, you know, your theory about 50, 50. Yeah. Um, for me, it has to do, and this was also one of the a very powerful part of this, you know, year long program that we did is working with the, the soul child yeah. shadow and the golden shadow. That to me was yeah. very powerful. Me too. Um, yeah. Talk about that for people who don't know what that is. Can you tell them what that sure. is and how you're working sure. with it? So, well, the soul child or the soul shadow basically lies in our point of integration, right? And growth. But when we're in what's called the average level of health, we can basically shift over to the sort of average level of our stress point. And that's a place where we find comfort, right? So the soul child part of me, when my six is just getting like really like over anxious, uh, I'm driving myself crazy. It's like, let me just please take a nap. Let me go under the covers. Let me just veg out and binge out on a TV show. You yeah. know, so that's my soul child is wanting that comfort and that kind of with that kind of withdrawal from having to be engaged mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of keeping track of everything. And it's, it's also important for me to recognize that I, I can do that in a healthy way. I don't have to do it in a way that's sort of an unconscious, like, let me anesthetize myself, but just really giving myself permission to fully yeah. relax. Yeah. And then the golden shadow is to be found actually in our, well, it's often called our, um, stress point. Yeah. Um, although of course it has what's called our missing piece, right? So our missing piece is, it's actually what we ultimately need to let go of our ego structure. And for me, so in a three, the missing piece is a sense of intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. And so that's been so, both of those have been so wonderful for me. It's like, I remind myself that yes, I actually do have that within me. Yeah. I can step forward. I can step into whatever it is that's calling to me, yeah. you know, and embody it. 
And so mm-hmm. I, I just, I love those, the, the shadow work, both the golden shadow and the soul yeah, shadow. I love that too. Can I name how it lives in me? And I just want feedback as to if you see other nuances, but can I throw that out there? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, when my, like the soul child of the six, I'm like really strongly connected to like the angstiness of it. In fact, a lot of people have wondered if I'm a six because I talk so much about my anxiety and my angst and my worry, but that's just part of my growth as a three to really integrate that that does live inside of me and to hold all of those fears and then just kind of step out and do it anyway. Because my understanding of six is that it's not about not being afraid. It's about acting in the face of fear and that that's courage once you've managed what you can manage and then you just step forward. And for me, I also feel this integration to six happening in the way that I'm connecting to this Enneagram community and really not wanting this platform to be about me, but sharing my own journey because I think with our vulnerability and our authenticity that this is how people talk about things that are embarrassing or tender and I'm just trying to model that I'm willing to do that and I'm loving when people come on and are willing to do that because I really think that as a collective, in order to create that systems change that you're so strongly attached to, we have to work together. Like I feel pretty powerless alone. Like I'm at this place now where working with other people doing their growth work and really wanting to figure out how we show up in the world with the most impact is what has all the juice for me. So that's how I'm integrating my six. Just naming how nine is for me, I think that because threes tend to be conflict averse when that's one of the ways we social chameleon is, oh, I'll just kind of go along with this agenda and pretend it's mine. That's where the deceit comes in. But it's not because threes are actually wanting to manipulate. It's actually because we sort of withdraw and get quiet and don't face the difficult conversations sometimes. Now, we can absolutely get reactive and patient and assert when we're trying to drive an objective. But to be able to hold the seat, to be able to pause and take that greater perspective to fall more into a role of being as opposed to doing and sort of trusting that I don't need to make this happen. And I know that nines are sometimes called the philosopher of the universe. They sit there at the top of the Enneagram point. And when they are connected to essence, they are this embodiment of right action and love, you know, they're, they're, they really are connected to love for everybody. And, and this is why they're great mediators and negotiators as well. They can take all perspectives and not get excessively attached to any of them and don't get as attached to their agenda. And so that's this piece of nine. Can I actually rest in that truly restful way that you're talking about? Not just driving myself to burnout and then just nining out, um, you know, in an average way. Can I incorporate true rest into my life? And can I incorporate being? And can I hold my seat? And can I pause to recognize that maybe I don't have to do anything in this moment? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for visiting that with me. So now where are we, Manya? You did your facilitating, your consulting, and that took you up to the pandemic when that work stopped happening well, for a while, right? Yeah. I mean, basically I, I shifted more into sort of personal coaching. Okay. Though I'd love to do more leadership coaching, but grounding it in the Enneagram, which yeah. I didn't necessarily before. So what I have realized is that my work at this phase of my life, which really allows me to integrate all my interests yeah, is really focusing on the Enneagram. I mean, that's my passion. Yeah. It's really been my passion. And it's how I think I can help make a difference in changing consciousness, basically. Mm, I love that. So what kind of communities um, do you envision? Like, how are you going to use it to, to change consciousness? Are you imagining working with one client at a time and helping them see their blind spots and 
basically heal what needs to be healed and transcend what needs to be transcended? Or what are you imagining? Well, definitely, you know, that, uh, because I think, as you know, and probably pretty, probably everybody listening to this knows that to the extent that we heal ourselves, we contribute to the healing of the world and the planet. Yeah. Uh, So I think it's important not to underestimate how important it is to help people awaken to their own suffering and how to kind of liberate themselves from that. Mm. I really like working with teams. I'd love to do more work with teams, Um, but it's the unknown. The future for me, it was a little bit unknown right now. It's like, uh, and I'm in a transition. I'm seriously considering leaving Ecuador because I don't actually feel like I have a cohesive enough community here. Where might you Uh, go? hmm? Where might you go? Well, I'm not sure. I'm considering Asheville, North Carolina, that area. Beautiful. So I, at this point, it's like an act of faith. Like I know that I, and I, I really enjoy teaching, although of course I can doubt myself uh, and get nervous about it, but I've always gotten the feedback that I'm a good teacher. So I'd like to find platforms to teach, uh, And get, but I'm really not sure how it's going to manifest. So there's an act of faith here, yeah. And saying, okay, this what I see in front of me is that I can finally get certified as an Enneagram teacher, yeah. And that I also need to change my environment. So I, I'm not really sure how it's all going to come together at this point. But I love talking to people in liminal spaces. Do you know this term, liminal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for our listeners, it's that in between place. It's like I'm not going to stay here. And I don't know exactly what's going to be over there. And Richard Rohr writes about the liminal space. I'm sure there are other spiritual writers that do as well. But I also, I'm right there with you, Manya. I'm in a liminal space as well. And there's definitely been a shock point for me in the last, you know, two or three months. And yeah, this is all a big exploration. I feel so grateful that you were willing to come on and share that. And the one piece that I'm curious about, I know that you are not a teacher of astrology, but you said there was something in common on our charts because I shared mine with you. Would you speak to that? Oh, yeah. Well, we both have a configuration in our charts that's called a grand air trine, which means we have one or more planets in each of the three air signs. Hmm. And so air is, you know, it's abstract. It has a lot to do with ideas. It also it has to do with the ability to be analytic. It, it confers, let's say, sort of a natural orientation and ability with analytic thinking, but also intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, and like air, you know, it kind of likes to explore and move around. And yeah, uh, it is so. So we have three planets in the air signs. Is that what you said? That's what that means? Yes. So what I'm saying is when you have a grand trine, it means it means that you have, well, let me back up for a minute. Each of the four signs, there's air, fire, water, earth, and there are three, sorry, there are four elements. There are three planets connected with each of the elements, right? Mm-hmm. So the air element is Libra, Gemini, and Aquarius. Okay. And when you have a grand air trine, it means you have a planet in each of those three signs. Ah. So you have a planet in Aquarius and they're, they're within the numerical uh, parameter to be aspected. So it has to be within five degrees to be aspected. Oh, wow. Okay. I never see, this is why I love bringing in these little astrology bits because it is very complicated. I'm learning and I'm sure it adds a different flavor depending upon which planets are in which air signs. Is that true? Yes. Yes. I'm assuming we both have this, say it again, grand air tron? Trine. It's a trine. Like a trine. uh, Like a triangle. Yeah, exactly. That's what it does. It forms a triangle. Right. Well, and I'm just sitting here being like, well, of course, three, six, and nine. You know, like that's what popped in my head. (laughs) So the grand air trine. That's cool. Yes. So it's, you know, it's just a natural inclination, one to thinking, (laughs) Uh, generally good at analytic thinking, but also can be very intuitive. 
But in contrast to that, for example, if people who have a grand earth trine, uh-huh. so earth is all about material manifestation, they are natural manifestors. Got it, it just like takes no effort. It's just there, you know, yeah. and people who are, have a, a water trine, yeah. uh, you know, a water has to do with the emotions. And so uh-huh. they're often, you know, they're great psychotherapists. They're just very in tune with yeah. sort of the, the whole emotional dimension of life. And then of course there's fire trines. I'm not quite as familiar with that, but fire is all about initiation. So these are probably people who are powerful initiators and get things going very catalytic. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you referenced human design and that you went back and looked at your chart. Tell us a little bit about your human design chart for any of the listeners that are also curious about that. I'll tell you what, because I was thinking about it in relationship to the Enneagram. Yeah. So I was kind of listening you know, or looking at my chart again in relationship to that. And I realized that in terms of my instinctual stacking, so, you know, I'm self-press dominant, but I have a strong social and my, as we've talked about, my sexual instinct can really assert itself, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, it basically asserts itself when I feel like I have an absence of it. Now I'm not necessarily in crisis. but that's built into my human design. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a gate, a channel that's very connected to the need to bond and have close relationships, which is mm-hmm. the social dimension. Mm-hmm. And I also really like change. I have a real need for change and that's the sexual instinct. Yeah. So it is sort of built into my design. And that's why, you know, I, I mean, I love being even more aware of what sort of each of those instinctual energies you know, brings to one. And, but I I have a strong sense of, and some people I know who've studied this, they get more confused about, I'm not sure which is which, you know, but I I don't have any sense of confusion about that. Well, and I just want to name that, that in my exploration, it seems like there are those of us that love these maps and it's like, give me another map, give me another map. And we just kind of layer map upon map upon map. And then there are people who really want to take one modality and use that modality. And they feel very strongly that layering all these other nuances on top of it, distract people, take people off their path, add confusion. And what I would like to name is that these are polarities. So we have an affirming and a denying force when we're talking about the law of three. And what I see is that There are people that love all these maps on one side, and I'm in that group. And I call that because I'm, you know, my co-parent is introverted thinking. So I think that if you have introverted thinking in your top four functions, that you're going to be drawn to it on some level. And I think the higher up introverted thinking is, the more you're going to love these. Now, um, and you can like them even if you don't have introverted thinking for different reasons. That's just one theory I'm throwing on. But on the other hand, there are people that don't want all of these maps. And my suspicion is that these people want to connect more to a specific objective. It's like, this is my goal and objective. And when I spend too much time talking about all these other nuances, I'm not crossing the finish line or getting things done. So I think that I long to bring in that third force, which is like, if you know, based on your personality structure, that having these different maps and you can check in and say, when is this helping me and actually seeming to directing me in a meaningful way? And when is this confusing me and my brain is just fried out and I don't need this information? I think that both are true. I think for some people, the maps are really helpful, and for some people, they're not. And this podcast is probably going to appeal to people that like typology and like all the different maps because I like it, and I'm interviewing people that have a willingness to talk to me about this. But I am also hoping to interview people that are going to come from that other perspective, and I have interviewed a few of those. There are some people that do not like trifix. They really want to just talk about the wings and the arrows and call it a day. And my theory is that there are also people that are passionate about trifix. I'm interested interviewing Catherine Fav in a couple of weeks. And obviously, 
she likes tri-type. She did her whole shtick on that, a major part of it. So I personally love all these maps. So I like tri-type and I don't have to use it. So my invitation to anybody who's listening to this is to just do a check-in and figure out if it helps you, pick it up, check it out, learn it. If it feels like it's not useful, it's probably not for you. Well, and it's, I, I think I fall in the middle. I mean, I'm fascinated by typologies and I always have been. And I think there are some pitfalls when you try and map some of them too closely. Yeah. You know, because I don't think they don't map one-to-one at no, all. not at all. And personally, I was actually looking, again, I, I don't use Myers-Briggs that much anymore. I, and in part, it's because when I introduce people to the Enneagram, I mean, it's so rich. Right. And it's so multidimensional. It's just right. like, you know, you can spend decades, right? We know, yes. right, from teachers. I mean, you can spend decades and just continue to deepen your understanding of it and exploration of it. But I, I do think it is sort of fascinating when I look at myself as an INFP, I am an expressive, I mean, I come out on the step two profile as an expressive early starting INFP. So I'm out of preference on mm-hmm. those two scales. Mm-hmm. And of course, sixes are emotional realism. So that's an expressive mm-hmm. kind of drive, right? Yeah. And then the early starting part of me, which is really only shows up in work settings, but I think that's the performance anxiety I have that comes from my six about, I need to be prepared. I yeah. have to, you know, practice. I really want to like, make sure this goes off well. Sure. <laughs> and so it was just sort of, I hadn't really connected those things before. Yeah. And there's a lot more work being done with Myers-Briggs now as using it as a personal growth tool and not necessarily a corporate tool. I think that that's an important thing to name as well. Like Mario Sakura has his own unique view of the instincts. And I think that what he's doing with the instincts is very useful in corporate. I think that oh, he has too. simplified yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And Mario's preferences are INTJ. And so that whole practicality, the executing, the, you know, giving somebody with something with some form that they know what they're getting. I mean, this is the practicality of the eight that we see in Mario. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we have the opposite end of the spectrum, which I'm going to just say is John Lukovich, who, you know, is a sexual four as opposed to Mm -hmm. a social eight. Those are going to look very different and have very Mm -hmm. different priorities. And my experience of John is that he's taking a much more energetic approach to his interpretation of the instincts and there's almost like a fingerprint with it that as I think John's an INFJ, you know, there's a much more intuitive and feeling approach to how he uses the instincts to actually help people with some deep healing because we do have um, wounds there. And I would say that Russ is in the middle of like these two extremes that I just threw out there where his theory with the zones allows people to look at these different areas in different ways and use them in a practical way for growth. But also he still does seem to believe in the blind spot and blind spot work and um, for transcendence. And I'm talking to other teachers who don't necessarily identify as Enneagram experts um, in the instinctual fields. I mean, they're, they're experts, but because they haven't put out their thoughts on them, I don't want to speak for them. But I know that there are a lot of people that just don't like the idea of a blind spot, period. There are a lot of people that want to say we have all three instincts and they're all firing in the appropriate situations. And I hope to get some of those experts on the podcast to kind of formally put their views on the instincts out into the sphere But where I'm landing right now, and knowing that I might change my mind, is that I prefer the terms primary, secondary, and tertiary, as opposed to dominant, middle, and blind. Because I think that as we do our growth, we're going to see that the blind spot is actually here more and more. And John has even said that those that are blind, when it's integrated, that that's the fullest expression of it. Um, as opposed to the dominant instinct, which can be a little neurotic. And mm-hmm. I'm eager to talk to Catherine because I know that she actually has a theory where it's the middle instinct that we develop last because it's almost like the middle instinct's good enough. We can use it well enough so it doesn't create as much pain for us. But as we're really 
evolving into the higher stages of our growth journey before we hit a shock point and jump to a new level in the spiral and get to do all the phases again, that it's stuff in the middle instinct that we're blind to. And this is what we need community for so that we can mirror, because that's going to be the hardest to see because it doesn't cause us as much pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We'll see where yeah, we're at. That's interesting. That is interesting. And I, I mean, I can see, I can see some merit in that because there are times, although I do, and I really liked when Jessica put it this way. I mean, I definitely use my social as a relay station. It helps okay. me both with self-pres and with my sexual instinct. Me too. But yep. there also are times where periods, not just times, but periods of life where I can feel very isolated. Yeah. And sort of like, it's not necessarily natural in terms of how to shift that energy yes. space. Yes. Well, Manya, thank you so much. This was such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate having an opportunity to know you. And I'm so excited to launch on our next learning journey together as we finish our Enneagram teacher certification with Russ next year. Well, I've enjoyed it too, Cara. I was really looking forward to having a chance to talk more one-on-one with you. So thank you for the invitation. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation. consultation.